everybody. Hello. Good afternoon. Depending on where you are, maybe it's good evening, maybe it's good morning. Wherever you listen to the podcast, it's great to have you here today. I am Sherry Dutter. I am an occupational therapist and recovering dysgraphic. I want to welcome you to the writing glitch, hacking dysgraphia, no pencil required. I am here today with Paul Zolman. He came to me through some unusual circumstances. It's kind of, I tried this new uh, adventure called Podmatch. And all of a sudden, I'm having guests that I would have never met. But this gentleman has this really cool game. And I'm so interested to share what this game is like and how simple it is and helps these kids with their social emotional development so that we can expand their self-regulation, we can improve their self-leadership, and then they can engage in the classroom. So welcome today. Paul, it's great to have you here. Thank you, Sherry. What a delight to be with you. So tell us a little bit about you, how you got started with this game that you have. And then, of course, you have to tell us more about the game, too. So you are welcome to share your screen. This will go on YouTube, and uh, we'll uh, see where things go with this interview. Okay, thank you very much. I'll just share my screen as it is right now, if that's okay. And um, I'd like to start my story, actually, Sherry, with uh, more of a generational type of, of story. I want to talk a little bit about my grandfather. And I had a grandfather that had nine children in Indiana. And after that ninth child, his wife passed away. Absolutely distraught. He thought he would also, he made some decisions in that distraught time, which is a bad idea in any circumstance. Don't make bad decisions. Don't make major decisions when you're in, in the funk. And so he made a decision that he was going to sell the farm. He was going to sell all the equipment. When, when the buyers would come there, he, and he would say something like, and would you like this child? And would you like this child? And would you like this child? Until he systematically had given all the children away, except for one. He took Benjamin with him and moved to Montana, found a school teacher that had never been married, had 10 more children with her, of which my father is number six. So 19- Wait a minute. He gave all of his children away? Kind of like they did back in Bible times? Well, it may have been like that because many of the people that took them were preachers in the neighborhood, and they raised them as, as children of a preacher. So they thought that they it was good homes that, that he was giving it to some preachers that maybe could not have children or did not have children, but some were actually put in farms that where they were workers. They became more, more like a little slave worker at the time. Um, as I was doing the research, I found several of these children in the 1910 census. So this is the time period it happened. I found several of these children with different families, trying to reconstruct it myself just to get my own head around it, uh, understanding what really went on there. One of these children was four years old at the time, and I met him back in the early 80s. I met him and uh, talked to talked to him, and he said it was horrible that the splitting up of the whole family they wanted to be kept together. And just the whole idea that their father was leaving and they never saw their father again. So after he moves to Montana, has all these other children. My father was born in 1922. 
when he's 10 years old, this grandfather my, or his father passed away. So all so a couple of things are happening. You've got all this abandonment issues going on in the family. And now you've got the economic issues of the Great Depression. And so even though my grandmother was, she was an angel. She an absolute angel. She loved children. And thankfully, she loved children. It could have been a lot different um, if she did not love children. But she helped uh, my father. I think he had a difficult time in school. He was very sickly and didn't like school that much. He went to eighth grade and then just dropped out. So graduated from eighth grade. And then so as an eighth grader, he could get kind of an occupation of being a truck driver. So that's what he did. And that's what he did his whole life. That seems to be a very typical age that that generation went to school. My mother-in-law went to eighth grade. My grandmother went to 11th grade, which was a stretch. Her sister only went to eighth grade or ninth grade. So that seemed to be very typical of that age where they needed to get the kids out and be workers. Mm -hmm. But wow, that they he was just giving his children away. And that was your grandfather, you said. My grandfather, right. Wow. So a little bit of dysfunction. You know, who can, you can't even wrap your mind around that. Just such, such a story like that. So my father is, is better. He only has 11 children, of which I'm number 10. He didn't have 19 children like his father, only 11. And I, I'm even better. I only had eight. So my, my children are only having three. So it's, it's getting better, Sherry. Just as the generations go, it's getting a little bit better. But with even 10 children as, or being a truck driver, my father would come home every Friday night and be there through the weekend. Monday through Friday, he was gone. And so when he came home, he set the best example I could ever see in a father of taking my mother out on a date every Friday night. He wasn't very creative about it. It was always the Maverick Bar, always over alcohol. And so while he's being imbibed in this alcohol, he's hearing from my mother how each one of the children did during the week. And I'm, I'm imagining that my, I was never there, but I imagine that my mother started at the oldest because that's the firstborn. They start at the oldest. So by the time he get they get to Paul, number 10, he's kind of wound up. He's kind of annoyed at all the things that were happening. And what I realized was what was really happening is that when we stack annoyance on top of annoyance, on top of annoyance, on top of annoyance, then they blow up. And it's a, it's a big flash that happens. And he got angry. So by the time he got to me, he was ready to be ready to be flashing. So what that meant to me was that my weekends were really horrible. I hated, mm. looking, hated looking forward to the weekends. I did not look forward to the weekends. It was either the belt or a, a very heavy-duty spanking or something different. That um, I remember one time, one spanking being black and blue on my rear for more than three weeks. It was that oh, severe. Wow. There's, there's no, there was no one to call at that time. It was like Ghostbusters, Sherry. Who are you going to call? Yeah, that is true. In those days, there was no network. There is a network. In Montana, there wasn't much going on in Montana, I don't think, either. Well, I have a funny story about that. You know, everybody thinks that people from Montana should know how to ride horses. Well, 
I was 17 years old when I left Montana after my junior year of high school, went to live with my brother. That's kind of the only way that you can escape. After I uh, moved in with my brother six months later, he got transferred down to California and I'm going out on a date and I tell her I'm from Montana. And she said she she was really happy. And and she said, well, I have horses. We're going to go ride a horse. And so I th- I'd seen all those John Wayne movies. I'd seen it all, you know, Sherry. I knew what I what to do. I'd never ridden a horse. <laughs> so I, I grabbed the saddle horn just like John Wayne. I kick my leg up over. I land on my rear on the other side of the horse. I kicked all the way, all the way over the horse. And the horse was pretty tall. So I thought that's pretty, pretty impressive all by itself. But we just laughed and laughed about that. I had to confess to her that I'd never ridden a horse before, even though I was from Montana. So anyway, there's there's a stereotype there. So from that childhood like that, Sherry, I had I had a, a just leftover or what I call residual anger that I, I recognized that my brother had it too, that he was just trying to be a very kind, very gentle father and, and in high contrast to what, what my father was, he was trying to do his very best. But he would also have those moments that he'd be annoyed, 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 and then flash. And I found myself having those same type of moments. And I think that's the generational thing that was passed on that I wanted to talk about a little bit, that that is something that really had to stop. And even as much as I wanted to say, I don't want to be angry, that is kind of a double negative statement. And double negatives only work when you're in math. You can do a, a negative times a negative equals a positive. It absolutely does not work in relationships. And it doesn't work in goal setting. So that wasn't working, even though I make the declaration that I don't want to do that. I wasn't saying what I did want to do because I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, there's that social awkwardness. If you've ever gotten angry or seen someone get angry in a public setting, you feel pretty bad for that person that just got angry, that just lost their cool. That's the social awkwardness that was taught to me. That's the social awkwardness that was taught to me and, and implemented in my family. And I, I didn't like that part about me at all. At age 35, I'm still blaming my father. And then I realized, oh, I'm responsible for my actions. My father at that time had been dead for seven years at age 35. He died when I was 28 years old. So I realized that I can't even talk to my father about this. I can't even air that out. So I have to kind of work through it myself. Okay, I'm going to pause you again. My daughter just turned 28. That would mean my husband would have to pass away this year. Wow. (laughs) That's the age, yeah. So that's the age that my father passed. So how old was your father when you, like how how many years apart were you? Because you were like child 18 out of 19. I'm number 10 of 11. 10 of 11, okay. Yeah. Uh, my grandfather's the one that had 19. My father only had 11, only, and I, I only have eight. So, okay. Sorry. So tell me of, a little bit about this product that you have, because you're really leading up to something with this story, and I know you are, but I want to also keep all those listeners engaged that there is a reason that you're telling this story, Paul. Absolutely, there is. So I came to a point in my life that I was dating about 15 years ago. The all that anger and the flashes were contributory to a demise of my first marriage. So we got divorced. I was single, then started dating, got interested in this, this lady that my 
my sister had introduced me to, who developed a relationship. It was time to, for Big Brother approval. So I took her up to my big brother. And we, first thing we go in, uh, my sister-in-law pulls her aside and says, the only emotion that the Zolman family learned growing up is anger. At first I said, oh, uh-huh. then it made me mad. And I thought. <laughs> Proved oh. it. <laughs> there, proved it, yeah. And she nailed it. And I thought, if there's any time to change that perception of the Zolman family, now was the time. So I started reading the color code and I read, started reading the five love languages. And I really liked the principles of the five love languages, Sherry, because Dr. Chapman that wrote it was a reverend mm-hmm. himself. He said that these principles actually align with the, with the life of Jesus Christ. He served mm-hmm. people. And as far as a review for the five love languages, service is one of those things. He just served people. Touch is another one of those love languages. He touched the eyes. He touched the ears, eyes so they could see, ears so they could hear. And commanded Mary after the resurrection, touch me not. So maybe she was coming in for the hug. Who knows what was happening at that time, but definitely touch was part of his ministry. We love his words. Words of affirmation is another one of those love languages. He had the gifts of the Spirit, and he spent time with everyone. So those five love languages really, really resounded with with me. I could reconcile that to myself as well. I wanted to learn more about that language. What I realized, Sherry, is that there's a language and culture of anger. There's a language and culture of love. They're kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum, so to speak. And so once I understood the spectrum and knowing that my sister-in-law put me on the angry side of the spectrum, I didn't want to be there. I did not want to be in that that angry culture, angry humor, angry vocabulary, angry, angry this, angry everything. I wanted to be on the loving side of, of that stick. So I started working with that. I didn't really get Dr. Chapman's suggestions of how to express that. I'm a bad guesser. I was single at the time. I didn't have a significant other to practice it with. So it was left to me to guess what your love language is, Sherry, and cater to that. And Dr. Chapman was calling that love. I came from a place of abuse. That wasn't love. And that didn't sound like love to me either. So I thought, well, let's see what else he has. And then he's got a survey in there. If I take that survey, I can find out what my love language would be. Then what? What do I do? Advertise? Hello, Sherry. I'm Gifts. What do you have for me today? That also was very awkward for me. I couldn't, I could, didn't understand that. And that I understand the communication part, but the, even the communication part was such that if you told someone how they should love you, what if they didn't deliver? You get this little whiny voice that says, I told you how to love me. I told you what my love language is. You're not doing it. And I didn't even want to go there. I thought there's got to be a better way. I do remember growing up that the that games brought our family together. As dif- dysfunctional as it was, it brought our family together. And um, there was smack talking and all that as part of the angry culture, but it brought our family together. And I thought, I'm going to contact Dr. Chapman and see if he's going to will license those icons of the love languages and see if I can make a game out of it. I contacted him. I said, are you licensing those icons? He said, no. They sent a letter back from his attorney. And so I contacted an attorney locally and he told me that, a copyright attorney, he said that that theory, like the love language theory, is not copyrightable. Application. Mm-hmm. So the application is what, what's copyrightable and how you use that. And so I made my own icons and then I put them on a die. 
Here you can see what it is. I'm showing mm -hmm. the die for, for your listeners. I'm showing a die that has a hourglass on a hand. That signifies time. It's just a picture. Now I'm, I've got what a waiter holding a, a platter. That signifies service. Mm -hmm. Got two hands that make a heart. Uh, when you say I love you with your hands that way, and it has a little conversation flower, that signifies time or uh, the word, excuse me. Two hands touching each other, that's touch. And then you've got the gifts. So the five love languages, six sides on the die. The last side of the die is surprise me. It's a hand with a question mark on it. So there's just two instructions, Sherry. You roll the die every day. That's the love language you practice giving away all day that day. All day to everyone. Like I said, I was single when I created it. I didn't have anybody else to talk to, anybody else to send the love to. So I said, well, everybody, watch out. Here I come. And so I, I started sending the love out in an intentional way, one theme per day, sending it out without any expectation of it coming back, but trusting that it's karma or trusting that it's the law of attraction or trusting that it's the law of the harvest, whichever law is all the same thing, whatever law it is, that it's going to come back someday. Mm -hmm. But just don't expect it. I just, just don't do it with, with an expectation kept doing that. And I, as I'm doing that, I'm seeing people light up. When they're lighting up, bingo, I hit it. I hit on maybe what Dr. Chapman called the primary love language, something that they liked. They liked and they had a reaction from that. So no longer do I have to stop the relationship, pause for a minute, ask them a question. Will you take this survey so I know how to love you? I don't have to do that anymore. I use my observation skills to be able to detect what their love language might be. And everybody can do this. What happened also in the 30-day uh, period, so I learned all five love languages to give it away. After I read the books four or five times, I went through the books, but the books didn't go through me. In other words, I couldn't name all five love languages. If somebody offered me a million dollars, I would get one or two wrong. I could not name all five love languages, even after studying it like that. I just couldn't, didn't get it that, that much. I liked the principles, but I just didn't get what he was naming them. So, Dr. Chapman, I am understanding what Paul is talking about. I've read the book and it's like I got the head knowledge. I didn't get the heart knowledge. Yeah, exactly right. So I, I wanted that to be instilled in me. So in creating this game, I did the play on words. You roll R-O-L-L, -L, the die outside of you. And it determines what you'll do on the inside. And it changes you within so that you can now you understand how to give it away. Most people, according to Dr. Chapman, I like this part about his theory, is that most people will give away what they their primary love language is in order that they can get it back. So it's almost a, it's like let's make a deal or it's like a, the reciprocity there. To me, that's a transaction. And that still isn't love. It's a transaction. It could be a business, so to speak. It's a transaction. That's not love. It can be sent with a great intent and have loving intent that way. But if you there's an expectation hooked to it, there's there's agenda. You've got something going on there. And you have that expectation. You can't have that expectation when you're sending out love. Love is love. It's independent all by itself. Send it out without any expectation of it coming back. Then it comes back for you. Then right. when you light people up, when you make their day, that's when it comes back. That's cool. 
Now, I want to transition and ask you another question. But before we do, we need to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Daughter Educational sponsored today's episode. We offer Dysgraphia Certification Course. This course builds dysgraphia awareness and provides practical interventions, strategies for lesson planning, and to help progress monitor your outcomes. Who should take this course? Well, it's really designed for the general education teacher, but I have certified occupational therapists, speech therapists, dyslexia teachers, and special ed teachers. Parents have also benefited from this material. To learn more, your next best step is to go to sherrydaughter.com forward slash calendar and look for the monthly dysgraphia webinar called The Impact Formula. Meet me there. Meet me live. And we can learn a little bit more about you and see if you're a good match to become certified. Now, my question is, is one, how do you use this dice that you've created with students and or teachers? So right now we've gotten a lot of this background. There's been a lot, you have a lot of anger issues that you've resolved in your life. You found this uh, metaphor with the five love languages. How are you helping teachers and students improve their love languages? And how does that work in school? Because we all know that you're not supposed to uh, bring religion into uh, the school system here in the United States. Yeah, and that's a great question, Sherry. I appreciate that question. So the way this comes into a, a school is that introduce it just as the love languages and just basically it becomes the love languages. What I've suggested to the teachers is roll it at the as a class at the beginning of the day. Then it takes two seconds to do that, maybe 30 seconds, maybe 60 seconds for the teachers playing class. Now we're watching for this today. These are the type of activities. Maybe they could be three to five different types of suggestions of what the kids could do that day, what they could watch for that day. And then at the end of the day, I'm providing teachers with a PDF of this journal page. So on the journal page, it has what you rolled, what opportunities you saw love in that way, what you did about those opportunities. So at the end of the day, I've talked to several teachers, Sherry, and at the end of the day, the last 10 to 15 minutes, there's really non-productive time. The kids are antsy. They're, they've been there all day. They're tired of learning. They're brain dead, whatever you want to call it. They've got that time that's really non-productive. So I want to take that specific time that really is non-productive. Let's make it a little bit more productive. That's when the children were, would report. They'd write what they rolled, what opportunities they see that day. They self-report. They're being accountable themselves. And then they're just uh, what they did about those opportunities. So. Teaching accountability at that age is going to be a, a fabulous boon to the classroom attitude. Everybody's going to be in charge of their own personality. They're going to realize that they're in charge, and they now they have to report about it. They've got to report what they did. But what that report becomes is a love journal. It's actually a love journal for first grade. It's a love journal for third grade. It's a love journal for sixth grade. Whatever grade it is, it becomes a love journal. What the teacher does in that situation, they they check, yes, they did it, yes, they did it, yes, they did it. I've got a, a franchise franchisee of Yogurtland here in town that 
is cooperating with the schools I've set up with us in town. And for every 15 days that they record a, a journal entry, he'll give them five ounces of yogurt for free. Yeah. That's pretty it's pretty cool. It is very exciting. If they'll do it for 25 days, in other words, if they do it as a habit and create that habit of being responsible and being loving every single day for 20 days, the stories are going to be great. They'll get 10 ounces of yogurt for free. So he's really been very, very nice and participating. So from 15 to 24 days, they'll get the five ounces. But if if they hit the 25, 25 days, which is the habit forming kind of magic numbers between 21 and 30 days or 21 and 28 days, if they hit that magic day and form that habit of keeping that journal, keeping track of their behavior, you can be assured that that behavior is going to be tamped down. If they're responsible for their own behavior and the responsibilities put on their shoulders, they have to write about it. And they'll take those papers home so the teacher doesn't have all these file folders full of everybody's journal. and They're not responsible for that. They send it home with the child. Hopefully those parents will be responsible. Those parents be responsible enough to hold on to that, put it together at the end of the year so they've got actually a book. I would have loved to have a love journal like that from my mother or my grandmother. Instead, Sherry, I got a journal that had to that told me what the weather was like 60 years ago. Who cares what Is the weather was? Is it called the almanac? <laughs> oh, I could have read the almanac for that. I, it was uh, they did not write the almanac, but they could have. I mean, the way they wrote the weather. But anyway, I would have loved to have something that was more personable, something that really said what there was to love in that day and then what they did about those those choices that they had. So I have a, you know, the podcast is about the writing glitch. It's about the disability in writing. And I'm looking at your journal. And I want to throw this thought out there. For anybody who is watching the YouTube, you can see what the journal looks like. It has single lines on the uh, workbook. So if you have a kid who is struggling to get through the journal and write it out, one of the things that you can do is you can take the contents of that, of what's on the page, take it over into Canva, make three lines for the student to write on if they're in first grade and they're struggling with their writing. Having those three lines in first grade, second grade, we have to wean off of it. By third grade, they should be writing on single lines okay. But even in first grade, you may find that kids are just struggling because they don't understand that single line. But taking it right over into Canva, a lot of the schools right now, because they are connected with Google Classroom, Canva is offering free membership for teachers. So you have to be able to a teacher to, to get to that level. Reproduce that PDF so that your students can actually fill in the blanks using like three lines. So you got the top line, the dotted middle line, and the bottom line. It shouldn't take long to create one PDF that you can then make copies of. So I'm not saying that you did anything wrong there, Mr. Paul, but I'm just giving the uh, teachers that thought of, oh, if I did it once, it could help more of the kids in my class that might be struggling with writing. And then you got to change the size depending on what grade they're in. I don't know if anybody knew this, but about five years ago, I actually went through all kinds of handwriting paper and I figured out the size of all the handwriting paper. I have a 
do-it-yourself handwriting paper uh, webinar that I did, gosh, five years ago. Maybe I'll just have to pull that back out of the archives and you can see what my work looked like uh, back in 2019 when I was first starting this adventure into uh, uh, online uh, presentations. Probably is really bad, but the information that was in there was really helpful because it really did help me understand what kids are able to see and how that what they see translates into how they write. So this is just a suggestion for the world. Once you see what's in on the uh, journal page to make those adaptions, you can also just enlarge it. And sometimes just enlarging it and then making it in two pages might be helpful to the students as well. Yeah, I like those ideas. A lot of my work over the last five years, Paul, has been studying worksheets Mm -hmm. and what is confusing for kids and what is not. One thing I must give you a kudos for is your page is very simple. It is nice that it's simple. It's easy. It's cut. It's three sections so that it's very easy. It's one, two, three. Most kids can follow three-step rules. Mm -hmm. So because it's that simple, that's it's going to be easy for the kids. But those ones that are struggling with a single line, those are the ones that they get referred to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that would be what I would do. I would take it. I would look at what's essential there, put it over into Canva and and uh, add the the uh, extra lines to it. Great idea. I'll, I'll restructure that for children. And I think it's I think it's okay for adults, or would you agree it's okay for adults the way it is? Oh, absolutely. That that is that is a, a great setup for adults as well. It's quick. It's simple. Mm-hmm. One thing, you know, if I was a, an adult, and I would also be looking for a companion ma- book. So here I am giving you some ideas of things that you can do. A companion book that goes with it that might. Uh, share um, a Bible study to go with it. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah so, or or a law of attraction story or something, um, depending on what market you really want to reach. Yeah. Yeah. I like that idea. So and in the book, it's double-sided to, uh, there's a, a journal page on each, each page. What I had one couple do is one other person would write on one page and the other person on the other page. So actually, it was a couple journal that this is what the guy saw, this is what the woman saw, or this is what the, you know, just whatever the couple is. It's just each one of them will write on one one page, have their own page. And so it goes through, it becomes a together journal, which is very, very nice, especially when you're talking about love and how, mm-hmm. how some people see things a different way. They'll see different things, different opportunities throughout the day, and then they can share that in a journal together. I thought that was a very, very good idea. Very good use that way. That That is a, a great idea. And then during their time together, as long as they have that time together at one point throughout the day, they can, uh, if it's in the morning, what happened yesterday or mm-hmm. in the evening, what happened today, they can have that time and heck, they can have their uh, prayer time because we all know that couples who pray together stay together. Absolutely. Absolutely. So any other thoughts about kids that you have seen uh, how teachers have helped kids that are struggling with writing engage in your book? Have you seen any strategies that they've used? 
I am just, this is brand new this just this year, Sherry. So, so the, the da- data is still out there and the, it's too quick to make an, a judgment of how that's going. But mm-hmm. the, the first graders are, are, are absolutely struggling, as you would suppose. The first graders and kindergartners, they're struggling a little bit with the writing because mm-hmm. their, their letter, the letters to fit in that little line is, is very difficult. They, they're yeah. used to making the big letters and then the dotted line in between for the for the penmanship papers, all that. They're just struggling a little bit that way. Another thing that you might want to think about for kindergartners who really haven't gone through writing instruction yet is a big space for like a big block on for, the thing so that they can draw a picture yeah. and tell their story through pictures. Absolutely. I agree with that. And ho- hopefully if they can see the lines on there, they can draw over the picture over the lines to mm-hmm. double. Yeah, but if they don't have a block there, they're not going to do it. They're not that in creative and inventive. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah, you're probably right. I like that suggestion. Thank you. As far as teachers sure. go, I think I think that implementing it just you'll see the teachers are going to see teaching moments, as I call them, all throughout the day when a child is really engaged or that and they've done something wrong then there's a teaching moment because I, I tested this with a family, a family of five children. The, the youngest was four. One day he rolled physical touch and he's jumping up and down and pumping his fist and saying, yes, physical touch, physical touch. And immediately goes and beats up on his brothers. And it, the, the mother has to kind of suppress the laughter because that's not what she expected. It's not what they talked about. But it's what how he understood physical touch. Possibly that's the way his brothers showed love to him, and that's what he understood as love. So it became a perfect teaching moment, not only for that four-year-old child, but for the other siblings as well. She Absolutely. said, "No son, no son." The high five, the fist bumps, the hugs—that's appropriate physical touch. That's what we're doing, and that's how we express love in appropriate ways. So. It was a great teaching moment. I think that teachers just watching for those teaching moments, you'll find the children making mistakes. Don't focus on on the mistakes that they make. Focus on what they're doing right. Focus that they're trying. I like this analogy that whatever you magnify is going to grow bigger. And as you magnify, you magnify the good that the children are doing, that's going to grow. We don't want to magnify the faults and make those grow bigger. A lot of parents don't understand that. A lot of teachers don't understand that. We just want to focus on what's right about that person. What can I love about that person? And I found that's that was what my mindset changed to. That was the behavior change that I needed to have. Instead of having the negative, I don't want to be angry. Now it's the positive. I do want to be loving. I do want to find out what's right about people. And I, one, one other thing I want to just say is that in a yoga class, at the end of a yoga class, the teacher's going to put their hands together like this, like they're praying, and they're going to say namaste. Namaste is a word that comes from the Sanskrit dialect in northern India. We also get the word karma from that same dialect. We also get the word nirvana from that same dialect. Great words that we have in our vocabulary now that we've adopted from that Sanskrit dialect. The Hindu translation of that is this, the God in me sees the God in you, or the divine in me sees the divine in you. That's what we're trying to accomplish here, trying to teach the children that, watch for the good in people, 
And don't listen to the media because they're always reporting what's bad. They're always reporting the mistakes that people make. They are, and why are they're they're magnifying that? They're making it bigger than life, and it's it seems to, to advertise that this is okay behavior. It's not really okay, but they're advertising it enough that it makes it well not really acceptable. But it makes other people think that well maybe I'll try that. I mean, it just puts it out there. Let's not advertise that. Let's advertise the good that people are doing, and we can do that individually. There's no no better. Yeah, it all falls into neuroscience. It's much easier to get that amygdala activated than it is to shut it down. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, can you tell people where to find you before we uh, head out for the day? Yeah. So the best way to find me is at rolloflove.com, R-O-L-E of love.com. And this play on words, R-O-L-L is what you do with the die. It's outside of you. You can't really change circumstances. A lot of times you can't. Sometimes you can't. But you can change yourself inside. And that's what we're trying to accomplish here. Sending love out. R-O-L-E of love.com. You can find the book, book the die and the journal all together in a bundle right now that's on sale for less than $30. And it's a whole lot less than a therapy session. So. Sure is. Well, thank you very much for being here today, Paul. The Writing Glitch podcast is released on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month. Please subscribe to the podcast and write a review. You know, down on YouTube, it's right below. Somewhere on Apple Podcasts, you can find that review button down below. Same thing on Spotify. Same thing on Google Podcasts. Please write a review. Let us know how we are doing. If you want to listen to the podcast on my website, it's on thewritingglitch.com. If you go to thewritingglitch.com and you click on Pocket Cast, you can hear more discussions on interventions that I have to share about kids with dysgraphia. And remember, you were put here for such a time as this. Sam C. Productions manages post-production of this podcast. Thanks again, Paul, for being here. Thank you, Sherry. It's been my pleasure.